welcome to the Face Off Podcast, a podcast, no, I'm keep, I'm going, a podcast for the movies of John Travolta, Face Off with the movies of Nicolas Cage, until it culminates in the movie Face Off. I'm Jess McBride. And I'm Erin Hennessy, and we will be your guides along this journey through the Utah deserts of Travolta and the sunken ships of Cage. This is our third episode, and it's all about people who steal things from America. Um, This week we're facing off the movies Broken Arrow and National Treasure. Uh, Let's start with Broken Arrow. Uh, This... We're the opponents. I think I think Broken Arrow was a little bit more like under the radar than National Treasure. National Treasure was sort of like a bit like a I don't know, a box office kids hint family thriller. Maybe. Oh yeah. It was a hit. An educational thriller. Surely. Yes. Yes, definitely. So, Broken Arrow came out in 1996, which is also when The Rock and, came and out. And Face Off, right? Am I making that up? Uh, okay. Yeah, which we, you know, I feel like Crap. you are because it seems like Michael also came out in 96. So many movies for Travolta. Look that up. Well, I'm looking I keep it up right going. now. Broken, I know, Broken Arrow was directed by John Woo and John Travolta's co-star was Christian Slater. The budget for this movie was $50 million, and the box office was like $105 million. Not bad. Not great. The Rock made like a lot. three times that much. So yeah. I think it, it was sort of in the shadow of the, the Rock. The shadow of Michael <laughs> Bay point. or the shadow of The Rock, yeah. I mean, there was definitely explosions in Broken Arrow, but not quite. Not I quite as explosive. Yeah, I feel like it's just that face-off came out in. I looked yeah. it up, 97. It was 97. I was just going to tell you that. 97. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Maybe, well, that's why, Yeah. I mean, maybe what maybe what happened is they Broken Arrow came out and The Rock came out and they were like, "What if Travolta and Cage were in a movie together?" I guess it wouldn't have been when they came out, but like as they're working, uh, and obviously we're not we're not facing off Broken Arrow with The Rock, but I do want to pull another. Hans Zimmer did the soundtrack to both of them. Whoa! Hans Zimmer does the soundtrack to about Zimmy? like four movies a year. Um, he he yeah. really does, and, I, and they all kind of sound vaguely similar, <laughs> which is fine. Yeah, I mean Hans Zimmer isn't as much of a person as much as a factory. So he's it's not the a person. Hans Zimmer music factory. So <laughs> this movie, Broken Arrow, Broken Arrow, named after this concept of. Uh, a nuclear warhead being going uh, taken like disappearing. from the armory. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Disappearing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, which why is it somewhere. not just like a missing arrow? Like I feel like a broken arrow is still in your quiver, but sort of sadly not usable. And it's so. So what you're saying is it's not. That's broken. how I'd be structuring my codes. <laughs> Yep, I think well, they like, should call it something arrow. completely different. Maybe that's yeah, giving a, away too much. A disappeared arrow. We have a disappeared yeah. arrow in our myth. Yeah, people would know. Broken arrow is more. Yeah, I think it's maybe it's too on the nose. So anyway, the we the 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 movie opens with 
Michael. Michael, I just Michael's just gonna call him Michael from now on, just because yeah. he's an angel. John Travolta in and Christian Slater, right, right, all from Michael. Um, uh-huh. boxing, and it's a pretty, pretty good opener, I would say. Yeah, um, I this thought is it was setting very creative. Up the fact that, um, I did too, and it it started out with just them in the center of the screen, zooming in very slowly, and really setting up like here's the two. Here's the two sparring partners, and then you kind of zoom in further, and you see that they're in a gym, like a workout gym for the Air Force. And, you know, it kind of sets up this thing that these two men are, like, bonded in a way, but John Travolta's character is clearly the more skilled fighter, and Mm -hmm. he's teaching, you know, he's teaching Christian Slater's character, but also kind of letting him... Uh, maybe not letting him. Christian Slater's character does get some punches in. Yeah, he's giving him advice, and then he's like, <laughs> yes. just kidding, I'm going to beat the crap out of you and knock you out. Also, interesting yeah. thing about this scene, like, in terms of, if you're if our listeners have read any of, like, Save the Cat or anything, the, the way that the writer of Save the Cat kind of structures um, screenplay writing is... I feel like it's, like, within the first ten pages, you have to establish, like, the plot or the theme of the story. And I think they do a really good job of that in the mm-hmm. story. It's, it's like, right out of the gate, within the first couple of minutes, we kind of know what the purpose is. Or we know what, like you said, we know what the relationship is and how the dynamic is going to be throughout the movie. Yeah, and also Travolta's, um, like, they have the mission... And then we also have this sense that Travolta sort of isn't the most obedient either, right? Because he's, like, smoking. Yeah. <laughs> I almost feel like his smoking habit is, like, this, this like, kicking the cat mechanism where it's like, well, we don't really like him that much, right? He's, like, yeah. he's smoking. And not only that, he's smoking in his commanding officer's office. He's obviously, like, not necessarily, like, the most sterling. Yeah, like, he's not – he doesn't have this, like, sterling behavior. So – for some reason that was not totally urgent to my mind, they wanted to take a test run with the stealth bomber <laughs> with two nukes that were fully like live. And I was like, why is this a good idea? Edit, you know, I don't know. Anyway, I think they were testing some sort of thing. Like, could you, could you take nuclear bombs and still be stealth? In stealth mode yeah. or something. Well, um, they, they call them crowd pleasers. It just felt like high stakes. Like the planes that they were taking out, crowd pleasers. But it was at... Oh, well, they, stealth planes... Stealth planes do get used during Performances? like... Performances? Yeah, or like... Okay. You know, like during... Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah, like... So, but I don't understand why that would be... It wasn't like they were doing that at the time. They were just doing a test run. So, anyway... Yeah. They were on this test run, and uh, it it sort of comes out that John Travolta, John Travolta's character, is not going to be going along with the test run mission. He is going to be taking over the plane, and he grabs a gun. Also, how much did you love the shot of his eyes? Where do you remember this? Where when like Christian Slater kind of figures out like what's going Wait a on. Second. Why would we do this thing? And then it like zooms in on John Travolta's eyes looking menacing and 
and kind of kind of mischievous. Yeah, I think I vaguely remember <laughs> that. Devious. Well, that yeah, thing. that was the thing that clued no, me in because uh, I was just having a moment where I was like, maybe I was wrong about Travolta. Like he seemed kind of bad, and then all of a sudden you see his face and you're like, oh no, nope, I know he's you love having the power of God right at your fingertips. Get off on it. Catch your window. There's something wrong with the train following here. Shouldn't that starboard ridge be on our port side? Yeah, no, it's it was a classic it was a classic like we're this is a bad person. So yeah, then he like grabbed the gun and what's the what's the Christian Slater's His name is Hale. It's his last name. It's, I think, Riley Hale. Hale. Hale Bales. (laughs) Hale Bales on the plane, you know, which then Travolta can kind of conveniently blame him for, like... He was the one who did this. uh, You know, wrecking the plane. So we're kind of set up with this mystery of, like, what is going on with Deacon? Deke? Yes, Deke. Deke or Deacon's name. Yeah, it's... But his, like, nickname is Deke. Deke, I'm going to go with Deacons. Yeah, go with Deacons. Um, so Deacons, you know, how is how is he going to get, you know, who is he working for? How is he going to get these nuclear missiles from the desert floor? Because they're in the Utah desert. Which I think is a little bit of the downfall of the movie. It's not necessarily the most relatable plot, in my opinion. Totally. You know, it's not like, oh, I've been there before. When my missiles are, like, in the desert, what do you do? Like, what's, you know. it's It's sort of... It was a little bit of a clunky plot, but we do have a female. You know in how the I know picture. this female? I know her as wait, no, she's not Beth. She's Amy in Little Women. <laughs> and when I saw her on the screen, I had a little meltdown because she, really? when I was little and I would watch Little Women all the time, she was my favorite character. When well, Kristen Dunst plays like the young version of Amy, and then she grows up and she. Uh, Samantha Mathis plays the grown-up Amy, Amy, and she's so pretty and elegant, and then she ends up with Christian Bale, and that's super hot. But they're both kind of like self-obsessed people. (laughs) I don't know. It's fine. Um, She's a good painter. So anyway, that was my only context for her, but when I saw her, I was like, ooh, fun. But she's, yeah, I thought maybe she was going to die. Here's the thing, though. I I was not opposed to, like, how they portrayed Mm -hmm. her, you know, when she, she responds to this call of, like, there's a parachuter, uh, or, you know, there's there's stuff going on in the park. She's a park ranger. She fully pulls her gun on him, which is sort of weird, because he has, like, an Air Force uniform, and, and he's he's not, he's, like, doesn't have a, a weapon out, uh, but she's, she's not pulling any punches when she approaches him. She's just like, you know, what are you doing out mm-hmm. here? Which is a pretty fun meet-cute, and then even, like, she, you know, they kind of wrestle around to try to which is again it's sort of like air force park ranger you're not like on different sides necessarily mm-hmm. how is this so contentious yeah why but it's fun did wait did, and it also showed that she had some wit and some uh-huh, good skills she did i i agree she was she provided some information that was valuable at different points in the movie she wasn't just like this helpless female um 
she she does follow Correct. him around a lot. Like he says, like stay here, and she's like no, which I feel like is sometimes a little annoying because that's like. I feel like that's like a Hollywood way of making a woman look more powerful than she is because then she's just like running around dodging bullets and just like following the guy but but it's still I mean I get I get what you're kind of but like she went yeah no I mean I think that they she was also coming up with strategies she was right like he there was the the helicopter was there and she had the idea of instead of um, staying put and having him just, like, shoot at the helicopter from where they were, her idea, which I think is a very female strategy, uh, was to become vulnerable, right, and kind of, like, wave to the pilot and be like, help, and, like, what, you know, because he wasn't going to shoot at her uh, because she knew, you know, she just knew that. She was in a park ranger uniform. They weren't looking for her, although they were kind of shooting everyone, so she really... T- which she didn't know at the time. So she kind of made herself vulnerable so that he could get a yeah. shot at, you know, at the pilot. And and she did that of her own accord rather than, like, seeking permission. You know, was she, like, was she, you know... Um, was she perfect? <laughs> was no. she Furiosa on Mad no. Max Fury Road? She was not. No. But she wasn't, uh, you know, of, of, of the movies that we've seen so far... I don't feel like she was Yeah, I mean, and also considering the year, like, if we're going to talk about the 90s, the 90s weren't awesome for women in film. Like, maybe some women, but very few. And, mm-hmm. I, I mean, she was she was relatively empowered for being a woman stuck in a film full of men. <laughs> and also basically a Go Army commercial. <laughs> I get it. It was like, everything yeah. in this movie was just nuts. Not so. So many explosions. So much testosterone. Yeah. She held her own. (laughs) Speaking of testosterone, can we talk about the true hero of this movie? Giles? Is that how you say his name? (laughs) Giles. Giles was definitely my favorite character. (laughs) He was smart. He was a good communicator. He was well dressed. Part of the movie. He was such a weird character. He never even met Christian Slater. Yeah. He didn't. We got ourselves a broken arrow. A broken what? Broken arrow. It's a class four strategic theater emergency. It's what we call it when we lose a nuclear weapon. I don't know what's scarier. Losing nuclear weapons, but that it happens so often there's actually a term for it. Why couldn't the lieutenant figure out all the things, right? Like, you know, the scene where he's like, the lieutenant's like, you know how I laid out, like, how to follow the rules? Well, now I'll show you how to break them or something. <laughs> it's like, why couldn't he just have agency and do do what he needed to do? Like, what was Giles' part in it? And maybe maybe Giles had to kind of be the go-between of, like, the, the big kind of boardroom politicians and generals and then the sort of, like, on-the-ground crew on communication. It did, it wasn't clear to me exactly why he needed to help solve the problem, but he was, you know, he kind of stood up for the nerdy guy. Like he, yeah. rep, you know, he represented the thinkers, the thinkers. among us. <laughs> it's true. He and he was, you know, he was observant. He was kind of the one who initially like re- recognized that they should be honest. Like they should tell the public what they right. should rather than let people figure out that they'd lied to them. 
Um, so I think he, I don't know. I don't That's know. True. He, I That's, liked him. Yeah. Well, and another, <laughs> no, I mean, I think that this is like kind of a, a, a par for the course, you know, dude, bro, military movie that was, you know, peacetime military, no war, no wartime, uh, you know, and there was some virtue signaling. Like I, I actually really appreciated, you know, as they're fighting, well, did I appreciate this? I'm not sure. You know, as they're fighting, Christian Slater has a, a crowbar or some, some metal in his hand. And, uh, you know, they were they had been boxing. Mm-hmm. And so instead of hitting Travolta uh, with the crowbar, which probably would have been better for everyone because the point was not to, like, sh- demonstrate to Travolta, like, his boxing skills. It should have been to, like, save, the, save Denver mm-hmm. <laughs> and, like, save everyone's life. And and de-arm, de- like disarm the nuclear weapon, but he drops the crowbar, yeah. and he's you know he kind of continues in the fair fight, right? Like so he's saying like, I value fairness because I'm the good guy, whereas mm-hmm. like Travolta does not have virtues. He is just you know wanting the money as well as the revenge because he was never promoted like within the military system he was always passed over so like because of selfish reasons like he was not playing fair and he was kind of making he was putting everyone in danger because of that and that's clearly bad i that just reminded me i would argue that is why i mean not that we predict could have predicted this but i think it's good that we didn't match this movie against the rock because Ultimately, the motivator for the army officers and the people or the, you know, that are performing this terrorist act is not as selfish. Like, it is this, like, they're doing it to take care of people. They're, they're like, making this choice. Whereas, like, Travolta is completely selfish in his endeavor to just, like, undermine mm-hmm. the government and under kind of just undermine everybody because he can he's kind of just like lost it yeah and putting people in serious danger yeah like like very reckless in the way he's using these nuclear bombs also did you remember the scene there's this i don't remember because there's so many scenes with the nuclear bomb where like he starts stroking the (laughs) nuclear bomb core and like there's like this choral music happening It's like, Hans, simmer, come on. on. Yeah. Yeah, Also, it was very appropriate that I think he died by the the bomb. Or he, you know, that he died by this thing. It ran into him. And that's like a a major way to go out. Yeah, which is weirdly something that happened in The Rock. Do you remember uh, when he Uh shot the missile and he's like... Rocket Man? Have you heard of Rocket Man? It's funny because... You're him, yep. or something so dumb. But he, there's a shot of that guy. I want to say it's the same stunt actor, and he's like, "Hey, guess what we did in this other movie? The missile actually." <laughs> Let's do it again. Yeah, this missile actually punches the guy out of the structure. Um. Anyway, yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh, I was going to say one other thing about this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it, it lends, I mean, it's it's just to give us some perspective on Travolta playing this character. Um, I found a, a little fact, a little trivia factoid, that Travolta was actually given the option, I don't know if it was by John Woo or by someone else, um, probably John Woo, 
to play either the good guy or the bad guy, and he chose to play the bad guy, which I thought was really interesting because as I was watching it, I I was kind of struggling with seeing Travolta as a bad guy. Like, I don't feel like he does the best job of playing an antagonist, hmm. but I still kind of like that he put forth the effort, that he was like, you know what, no, I'm going to play something different, presumably something that's a little more challenging. Yeah, I think... I think the thing with him is he wasn't, he didn't seem to be embodying evil. Like he hated everybody and he, he like, you know, like other people are really able or choose to put that into Mm -hmm. their villains, right? Like I'm a hateful person. I felt like Travolta almost had this like carefree, like this, none of this Mm -hmm. matters, right? Like none of this matters. I've been in the service 20 years I haven't been promoted, like, in the pace that I expect. And this is a big joke. We're not at war. Mm-hmm. You're, you're you know, creating all of these nuclear missiles. And for what? You know, for us to go on test runs and put our lives at risk. This is fully, like, you're playing a game. I'm mm-hmm. playing a game. And this is this is what I want. This, you know, I'm no longer going to, like, take, your punches. I am gonna win this round, and I'm gonna like sell these and go live mm-hmm. my life. Um, and I, yeah, I didn't feel like it was something where he's like, I hate America or I hate Denver. Yeah. <laughs> or like, you know, it was like, I just am done with this. And I almost felt, and, and it, like, it was this kind of new take on a villain where it's just like, just fully unconnected to morals and virtues and you know, I'm just going to do me, which is, again, is probably the root of most of the evil that happens is just a failure to care about anything. This episode of the Face Off podcast is brought to you by Crew Recruiter. Hiring a trustworthy crew can be really tough. There you are, out in the Arctic, seeking treasure that is historically meaningful, but also has a shit ton of monetary value. And bam, the client blows you up and your trusty mates leave you for dead. But that's all in the past. Crew Recruiter makes hiring simple, fast, and smart, so you can get back to what you do best, hunting historic treasure. We'll help you find an ethnically diverse team with all the specialized skills needed for your unique heist. Don't miss out on the essentials. Our favorites include the fastidious technician, the inept but lovable comic relief, and the totally out-of-your-league romantic interest. Use the code FACEOFF at CrewRecruiter.com today and get a free crew assembly montage with your penultimate purchase. Crew Recruiter. Get it together. On that note... National Treasure? Let's talk about someone who cares about something a lot history (laughs) yeah so our other movie that we're facing off with is national treasure historian and code breaker ben gates has been searching for his whole life for a rumored treasure dating back to the creation of the united states joining an expedition led by fellow treasure hunter ian howe gates finds an ice-locked colonial ship in the arctic circle that contains a clue 
linking the treasure to the Declaration of Independence. But when Howe betrays him, Gates has to race to get to the document ahead of his so-called colleague. I think that's a pretty good description. It came out in 2004. It was directed by John Turtletaub. The main co-star is Diane Kruger, but there's a ton of other people that apparently I don't know a lot about. <laughs> like John, wait, how do you say his last name? John Voight? John Voight? John Voight. And Christopher and Plummer. Scene uh, Bean. I like to call him Scene Bean. He's my fave. And in the or the budget for National Treasure was $100 million. In the box office, it made $374 million. Holy cow. And so, yeah, wow. you could say that it was very successful. And I feel, I feel like probably still raking in a ton of money. There's a at least one sequel yes, to this, there right? Is. There uh, is a there is a sequel. So and it okay. came out I think in 2007, and I did not see it. <laughs> I was thinking about it, and 2004 for us was our first year of college, right? So I feel like I wasn't really going to movies. I was going to movies at the Dollar Theater down the street from our college. Yeah. But other than that, it was just like not on my radar. I think the only movie I remember seeing in 2004 in theaters was uh, Anchorman, I think came out around that time. Because I know I was going to college and my parents went with me and I was mortified because they were watching Anchorman with me. Anyway, so I would say probably my main takeaway from this movie is that you don't need treasure, but it's nice if you find it. Like, it's, it's a convenient thing to find it. Even after multiple generations after multiple of generations. failure. Yes, and, and that whole dynamic was really interesting to me because we start out the movie with this flashback to a long time ago when Nicolas Cage is presumably a child. And he, yeah, so he's in the attic and he finds this thing and then his grandfather scares him and starts telling him about the treasure. And then his dad comes in and is like... No, we gotta leave. We don't, we're not gonna find a treasure. And his dad's like this huge naysayer, basically, that's like, it doesn't exist. I give up. We're, you know, this is something our family has pursued for generations and it doesn't exist, kind of a thing. Well, and later we learn that, later we learn that the, the father had devoted what he says is 20 years of his life to the, to hunting mm-hmm. the treasure and he did not succeed. And so, he experienced that failure, but we do find out later on in the movie that the the dad had spent 20 years of his life or so pursuing the treasure and failing. Mm-hmm. So I think his caution to his son isn't necessarily out of a sense of um, kind of a full non-belief, but that it was a it was a failed belief and and a disappointment and a you know, I think he was trying to protect his son in some ways even though it didn't work and his son grew up to become a treasure hunter. I'm going to read a critic's review really quick of this movie uh, because I thought it was it was kind of funny. This is from, I believe this one is from Empire. It is William Thomas. He says, Pulling off the neat trick of being simultaneously moronic and mildly educational, National Treasure is the Da Vinci Code light. Rubbish, certainly, but not without a certain charming stupidity. And that kind of sums up how I feel about this movie. I I went into it with a really open heart and like really wanting to love everything about it. But I found myself frustrated very quickly. It felt 
difficult, not unlike the other movie, not unlike Broken Arrow. For me, it got to a point where we, you know, once we're in like five chase scenes into the movie, it was kind of like, where are we? What are we doing? I don't know or care anymore. We've just gone, we've jumped through all these hoops in this wild goose chase. And I mean, arguably, that's the point. We've stolen the Declaration right? of Independence. We've stolen the freaking yeah. Declaration of Independence. I felt like I blacked out in the middle of it somewhere. Like, I, I didn't actually fall asleep, but I just kind of, like, went numb and didn't really take in a lot of what was happening. I also struggled a lot with the dynamic between um, Diane Kruger's character. Uh, her name's Abigail something... Abigail, I don't know. It doesn't matter that much. And um, and Nicolas Cage, because I just, like, it was really hard for me to understand where chemistry would come from between these people. It's it's mm. kind of another example. It's actually not that bad of an age gap, but they have, like, a 12-year age gap. And so there was a part of it that just felt like, why, why is this young woman so attracted to Nicolas Cage um, when his like traveling companion is actually closer in age to, to her and would be a very suitable, a suitable yeah. le- love interest. But Nicholas Cage is like the most interesting. Well, sort of, although he kind of, he was funny. Yeah. Although I, he was smart. He was smart too, but he, yeah, no, you're, you're totally right about that. I mean, they, I feel like they could have had a, a female in that role that could have matched Hit, like him wit for wit mm-hmm. a little bit more and and they kind of demonstrated that she sh- that she shared his passion of collecting things that's right because he gives her the coin that she puts in her collection that she's like missing one of or something and but but I felt like she could have been this more intellectual nerdy woman that is like all about the Masonic lore and all this stuff and is pushing back on him on certain things rather than just like you can't steal the declaration you know the declaration that's very fragile right it's just it it didn't seem like a match that that kind of with his intensity it like it didn't make sense um it also sort of didn't make sense with the script that they wrote they they kept saying how much she was talking and wouldn't shut up, which again is just offensive <laughs> in, in many ways. But like, she wasn't necessarily saying that much, you know. And then she gets held by the the European people, and they're like, and she won't shut up. And then Nicolas Cage smiles to himself lovingly, like, "Oh yeah, she's such <laughs> she, a talkative." She just line. talks all like, the time. Okay, no. now can you please stop shouting? Give me that. You're still shouting. And it's really starting to annoy. And you would do well, Dr. Chase, to be a bit more civilized in this instance. This is the real one. What did they get? A souvenir. I thought it'd be a good idea to have a duplicate. Turned out I was right. Actually, I had to pay for the souvenir and the real ones, so you owe me $35 plus tax. Genius. Who were those men? Just the guys we warned you were going to steal the declaration. And you didn't believe us. We did the only thing we could do to keep it safe. That dumb, give me that! You know something? You're shouting again. Pretty sure she was swearing, too. And it's like, the the character could have been this girl that's, like, very nerdy and, like, very, like, literally, like, is, you know, like, in the same way that he is, spouting all these facts and is actually outwitting him and out, you know, out-knowledging him. And so he is intimidated and tells her to shut up because he's he's like, (laughs) she actually knows more than me. 
but they didn't really they want they kind of then maybe dialed back her character to be this very you know kind of slightly scolding but kind of compliant yes and and I wonder if that has a lot to do with with Cage like as an actor he becomes this very I mean main characters of course are supposed to be the person that everyone's kind of revolving around but it really feels that way when I watch a Nicolas Cage movie it feels like everyone is just contributing dialogue that supports his brilliance and I don't like that like Mm. even even his the guy that was traveling with him I don't have his name I should have it but he he like all he ever says is, like, little witty things that don't contribute. Like, it's, like, he was basically, like, Topher Grace. Like, I, I felt like they couldn't get Topher Grace, so they're, like, let's find a guy who looks like Topher Grace and has the same comedic, uh, you know, relief value as Topher. And he would just be, like, oh, no, this is happening, or blah, 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 blah. What? He, I thought he was kind of sarcastic sometimes, which I really liked. I actually was really attracted to the, <laughs> to the sidekick because... <laughs> I am attracted to the class clown. I'm never attracted to the main character because they're usually too egotistical. And I I love the, like, witty side character and, you know. I, I know. get, yeah. I so mean, I I mean he's him. fine. Assuming Ben's theory is correct and my tracking model's accurate, we should be getting very close. Don't go by me. I broke a shoelace this morning. Shall we turn around and go home? Or we could pull over and just throw him out here. No, I mean, he was fun. He was fun for sure. But again, like, he didn't really contribute a lot of brilliance. He was just a pawn in this Nicolas Cage scheme. He didn't help. I know, I'm trying to remember. Well, he, you know what? He got the stow and, stow and, or plow and stow? Uh He got that one. I guess. We'll give him that. <laughs> Had you seen this movie before no. this week? Did you think they would find the treasure? I kind of thought, well, I knew they had to because it was Disney. I feel like that would not suit a Disney movie for them not to find the thing. But after, let's see. Okay, so they go, they're underground or whatever, and they go into like it's like the third chamber where they actually find the treasure, right? Like, they just keep going yeah. into different rooms. So many And so chambers. I did have a moment where I was like, well, maybe they <laughs> yeah. won't find it. And also, I feel like the dad, um, they have this conversation right before they find it, right? Where the dad's basically like, I don't know, he, he alludes to the fact that you don't, like, I'm proud, like, kind of like I'm proud of you. Um, and it doesn't matter that you found this thing or did not find it. And then and they, that's, and that's the a treasure. treasure. And then they find the treasure. The treasure is a father's <laughs> yeah, love. <right? laughs> oh, my gosh. Also, a, a note about all the compartments. They just lit everything on fire. And it was a fully, like, there was so much wood in that place. And they're like, oh, it's a chandelier. Psh, it's on fire. And then, like, when they're in the treasure room... Or even the lanterns that are just, like, hanging everywhere. They're like, oh, lantern, light this on fire. And then in the treasure room, he lights the, like, little trough lantern. Like, the, you know, he lights the troughs on fire that then, which I'm like, how is fuel lasting 300 years? Mysterious. Anyway. But it's just sort of like, what if something goes wrong and then all that stuff goes up in flame 
And they're, you know, it just felt very, very confident. Very confident. <laughs> Overly confident about the torch quality. I agree with that. That didn't yeah. quite check out. I think we should, I think we've said everything we need to say. <laughs> I think so. I mean, this was like a Jerry Bruckheimer film. Like this, you know, this was trying to be a, a crowd pleaser. And I think it did that to some degree. And... You know, this probably, I think this was the age of Da Vinci Code, where it's like, oh, we want to kind of believe in this mystery behind all of these things that we take for granted, mm-hmm. right? Like these, you know, there's the clock on the $100 bill that we see every day, and the, you know, the Masonic eye, and the dollar yeah. bill. You know, it's like, we want to we wanna believe that there's, that there's a positive or negative conspiracy behind things, because, you know... Otherwise, it's just like, well, some people lived and then they died. And Life is boring. And there's no great work of genius mm-hmm. behind it. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, let's go to our segment called Objectifyingly Speaking. And let's just talk a little bit about clothing and just all of the superficial things in life. You know, the things that really matter. Initially, I would just say I did enjoy parts of Cage's outfits in... <laughs> in National Treasure, but he did look like a dad that was trying too hard because he was a little bit old to be wearing Urban Outfitters. Like with his Urban yes, Outfitter clothing. I can't yeah. believe they were at that like well, first generation. At least he had some costume changes. I think that that sometimes doesn't happen during adventure mm-hmm. movies. Um, like I don't really think it happened for Broken Arrow, right? They basically were in one outfit you know, maybe they had their box, his boxing long sleeve t shirt. Yeah. But then he was like just wearing maybe that same t shirt the under whole his, time. Under his uh, Air Force. They put jumper. a lot of money into yeah. graphics. And so, like, it was fun to see. In that movie. I actually did like Cage in the winter outfit. I like a good parka. Oh my gosh. I love the Paul Simon parka. That Well, it was black, it wasn't green. But yeah, the yeah. Paul Simon, Paul Simon album, you know, his like furry hood that's like my dream jacket so I guess I need to move to the arctic so I can have an excuse to actually wear a jacket like that yeah I loved that yeah well you definitely can't stay in California Mm -hmm. you don't need those jackets at least where you're living now and then his outfit was just terrible when he was trying to get the the federal agencies to talk to him he was wearing this blazer which is fine but underneath he had this white button-up shirt with the collar fully unbuttoned and the huge lapels like splayed out in you know on top of the blazer lapel and it was and and then like blue jeans like blue blue jeans that were like it was bad you know just sludgy Mm -hmm. yeah it was just like what are you doing you need to be in a suit you 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 need people to take you seriously right now um so I was not surprised that everyone just ignored him. I <laughs> he yeah. was telling them about You're the like, conspiracy. You're crazy. You look crazy. Nothing. No, we don't believe you. I was also curious because they are in a changing room. Did you know that the changing doors? room in Urban Outfitters was? Is that what you were gonna say? The, the, there was almost they were no so doors. Low. Yeah, there's almost no doors, which did give us a chance to see the bare shoulders Diane of Kruger. the girl, which of course. You know, you have to do that, apparently. But then Nicolas Cage didn't have, like, he had a t-shirt on the whole time. And I was curious if he had a contract. I want to see his shoulders. I I will not take off my shirt. Equal objectification. Why not? Why not his shoulders? (laughs) 
It just was bonkers. It was just like, this was the clearest sign of sexism. You're making poor Diane be topless in this, like, saloon door changing room, which is apparently co-ed. And then Nicolas Cage, who is definitely looking over there multiple times as he's talking to her um, without her consent, (laughs) uh, you know, is... It was not fair. (laughs) And and he's in his t-shirt the mm-hmm. whole time. Apparently he didn't need a new t-shirt. Yep. So it was super lame. Anyway, do better. Yeah, do come better on, Hollywood. Hollywood. Let us see Nick Cage's shoulders. I would say Travolta. We I mean, there wasn't anything very notable about his clothing. He was he was no. <laughs> pretty I mean, everything in the movie clothing wise was pretty muted. Everyone was in some sort of uniform. And if he wasn't in a uniform, he was just in a plain T-shirt. Mm-hmm. Which Terry's uniform is, I thought, very it flattering great. for it her. It sectioned off her and waist. she w- wore it and very, very well. well. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was a huge fan of that. But she was still able to do all of the action moves she was. with it. <laughs> you know. She did quite well. And Christian Slater looked good. He, You made a note, I guess, like he continued to be in his uniform throughout and we see Travolta change out of his uniform mm-hmm. and like as I think is to symbolically show that he's like not representing that thing anymore. And so that was that was cool. Right. He's a, he's a traitor. He's a straight up traitor. And are they dateable? Yeah. I mean, hair and grooming, I feel like <laughs> is kind of meant. Yeah, let's just skip hair and Nothing's grooming. Changed. They were pretty par for the course. Of the of course, Travolta's hair, you know, hair it's hard to it's hard to be Travolta. Mm-hmm. It's hard. I agree. Are they dateable? Woof. Um, I <laughs> want to say that I would date. I I want to say that I would date BFG, aka Benjamin Franklin Gates, because I think he has a great love for America and he's very passionate and driven. But also Travolta is passionate and driven. Mm-hmm. I just that Travolta was. Um, taking his energy and harnessing it into negative things and also smoking. So I don't think I could date him. He was. I don't like smoking. (laughs) Oh, no. You're right. He was. And, yeah, I think I would rather have someone who is sort of nerdily into U.S. history (laughs) um, than someone who is into boxing and sort of just – money for the sake of money I mean what how you know what what did he need money for what he was gonna buy with Mm -hmm. it he had no passion and no hobbies that we knew of Um, just causing problems what what was he gonna funnel that into he had no he was a boxer he did box but I can't imagine he would have been able you you need so little okay maybe he's gonna buy a boxing ring to be the owner of and you know that's not that fun boring no I I agree so I'm gonna date you're going to date the I'm BFG. i date Ben yeah, as well. Yeah, Benny boy. I don't know. What's the BFG? Oh. Are you just saying the big friendly giant? <laughs> no, I'm just. That was nothing But from his the name movie. is Benjamin Franklin Gates. You're just coining a term. It's, yeah, I just made. I, it was easier. I know, but he's. Do they ever call no, him Benjamin Franklin but I, Gates? I want to call him the BFG. Because I, I like that Gates. story much better. Right. <laughs> oh my God. Let's just map the big friendly giant onto. On onto um, national treasure. Let's just do a podcast where we compare characters with the same initials. Okay. 
and see which one we like better. Let's do it. I don't even know who we'd pair with, with Travolta. Okay, it's time. Are we doing it? I know. I. Mm, yeah. I, I don't know if I'm ready. What? So this is the the face off. Oh. Oh, you go first. Well, let's you talk go first. through it. I think acting wise, like Michael, I think that. Travolta brought something really new and fresh to the villain character mm-hmm. and brought his sort of sassiness of himself, you know, his signature sassiness to this character that I think could have been just a mm-hmm. meathead. But he sort of brought this sarcasm and this almost sociopath nature by these little things that he said, the little little smiles he gave, his loving caress of the nuclear bomb Ew. that it like didn't yeah, he just was he it, it was an additional creepiness factor that like it did was just like who you know, this dude is not great. And so Cage I felt like nailed his role as a treasure hunter but i didn't feel brought anything particularly interesting to it and i think failed on the chemistry with the with his his female co-lead mm-hmm. and i think yeah didn't bring anything super surprising or noteworthy to this treasure hunter role same with same with the movies I, like you know neither of them were were anyone that we would probably write home about or watch ever again. You know, I actually would say National Treasure is probably a more interesting movie to me than Broken Arrow. But I think Broken Arrow was set in an interesting place and I think used the female character in a really interesting way. So I also like the... I like what they hmm. did with it. I like what they how they worked with it, even though the plot was clunky. I didn't hate it. Ultimately... I I said it at the beginning, I went into National Treasure being very excited about it. There were things in it that certainly made me laugh. It was entertaining on some level, but it got to a point where I just completely mentally checked out of it. I could not, I could not stay with the plot. I don't know. It is, it is the more commercially successful movie. So there was a part of me that was like, well, yeah, it it should be the better movie, right? (laughs) Because more people went to watch it and more people appreciate it. But ultimately, it just did not do it for me. I would say, I, I feel like I'm choosing from like the le- the lesser evil, but I think sure. Broken Arrow ultimately told a story that was slightly more concise. I mean, it wasn't that much shorter. It was like 20 minutes shorter again, but it was it was more concise. <laughs> it was more by the book in terms of its like structuring and the way that the story was told. Um, or the screenplay was written. So that was helpful. Like there were devices in it that were very, very obvious and interesting to me from like a writing standpoint. I think that Travolta played a character. I think that's what we're, I, I suspect we're going to keep coming back to this. Nicolas Cage kind of played himself again and everyone just kind of <laughs> revolved around him. And yeah. Travolta really endeavored to be a bad guy. He didn't do the best job. 
he he one thing I said he anytime he was like really angry in a scene he just kind of like clenched his teeth together and talked through his teeth and I was like that's silly you don't need to do that to be a mean person or be you know antagonistic so there weren't things not everything worked about his character but I love that he explored the character I like that he chose when he was given the option of being the good guy or the bad guy he chose the bad guy um, because I think bad guys are more complicated and challenging. His bad guy didn't have a ton of drive or, mm, or there yeah. wasn't like an obvious reason for why he was doing what he did. But if I had to choose, I would say that Travolta would win. I, I'm going to give Travolta this victory. He may not have won in the final boxing That's match, <laughs> but he won in my heart. And I, <laughs> I, I'm going to go ahead and say that Broken nice. Arrow is the better movie. And Travolta did a better job. Travolta gets my vote this week as well. Dang. So, so I, yeah. I mean, I think we're now, I think he's pulled he ahead. Because we've yeah. been tied, right? Travolta for Nicolas Cage too mm-hmm. at this point. Yeah. I think that if, I think that if Broken Arrow was matched up against The Rock, which was an oh, alternate universe. for sure. You know, possibility, I think The Rock would have come out ahead, so... We did not even begin to talk about yeah. Christian Slater in this movie, but I did enjoy him as well. I, I thought he was pretty studly. He also was really great. I recently saw The Wife, and he was I really liked him in The Wife. So, anyway, go out and see The Wife, everybody. Uh, it, yeah. was, it was fine. It was nice. It was Glenn Close at her finest. Speaking of uh, good things that you've seen or mm-hmm. experienced, do you have any peaches in your life right now? I do, as a matter of fact. I am showing my students West Side Story right now because we're studying Shakespeare. So I'm trying to draw some parallels. And I've really enjoyed watching West Side Story again. It's been a long time. And then also David and Schitt's Creek. You had mentioned Schitt's Creek in a previous episode as being a very nice peach. And I just love David. Like, David is definitely my favorite character. And he just gives me so much joy. He's it's true. he's amazing. It's, yeah. He's so those good. are my peaches. What what is your peach? You want to talk about peach? It actually is along the lines of David in Schitt's Creek, uh, which is a show produced and written by Eugene Levy. Nice Levy. Levy. Levy? I think it's Levy. So I picked up because I, I I like to pick up DVDs from the library sometimes to sort of have that kind of movie or like DV like what is it like a movie rental experience like where you spontaneously come upon a movie instead of being told by Netflix that you should watch this thing because you like strong female leads or (laughs) dramas with pumpkins in them or something whatever it is yeah and so I was in the library and I saw Waiting for Guffman and I realized I had never seen that which was a travesty and so I picked it up and I loved it and I am forcing you to watch it soon because it is really it's like a progenitor of Schitt's Creek and it's so funny and I and now I just realized how how behind I am with the Christopher Guest canon and I definitely need to put spi- this is spinal tap on my list. I've seen this is for or for your consideration and best in show, but I haven't seen the a mighty win and I was looking at his like filmography, so I I have some I have some work to do. Yeah, no, to I explore hear you. the Christopher Guest world, but waiting for Guffman was 
a delight. It was so funny. And I think, especially since you're a theater <laughs> director and producer. It's important. It's important. In your own right, you're going to you're gonna die. You're going to die. I know. In fact, I might just like come up to Santa Cruz and watch it with you because it's that You'd good. do that for me? I would so. love if you would do that. I We could just do a marathon. I have a break during Thanksgiving okay. so we could hang out and just watch movies. Perfect. I, I definitely... Perfect. I love, I feel like, I don't know if the the mockumentary style has gone out of vogue or if we're just seeing it in different, like manifest itself differently now, but he definitely created such an amazing little uh, space for himself and his create, creativity and his community <clears throat> with those movies. And it's just really interesting. It's just an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, and I, I think that it must have been the start of um you know the office oh in, yeah in the UK that came over here and then there's parks and rec and like all of the mockumentary styles that um you know had that like just quirky characters and improvisation and um yeah like handheld cameras mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think he, I think he was a genius in the, in the comedic world. And continues to be, but definitely then, but yeah, so. Has never been again. Never will be. Oh my gosh. Well, that's fantastic. I'm glad to hear that those things are happening in your life. Um, let's just put a pin in the, well, that's not the right phrase. Um. We'll just wrap this up now. Here we go. Um, (laughs) In the next episode, we'll be facing off with, oh my gosh, I'm so excited, Travolta's Grease and Cage's Valley Girl. Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm very excited about this too. I'm actually really (laughs) excited about Valley Girl because- I'm so excited. Valley Girl culture started in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles. You know, I wasn't living here at the time, but I'm very excited. This is a very, this is a Genesis story for our generation. Like this was kind of happening as we were coming of age and, you know. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Face Off Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at faceoffpod. Thank you for everyone who does follow us currently. It's sort of surprising that we do have followers really given that weird. we haven't published anything. I love it. Or email suggestions at faceoffpod at gmail.com. We hate to see you go. But we love to watch you leave. Bye-bye. Bye. Yay.